but I'm going to read uh, just the first part of the, the chapter as well. Chosen the title, Run, from the verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, because I love you, I say, run from idolatry. Please. Sometimes when you love somebody, you tell them to run. So I'm going to pick it up, actually, though, uh, as I said, read a little bit of the context, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll jump into today's text. Notice that we're actually, let's, let's, let's go back up, right up into chapter 9, the very end of chapter 9. Great, great passage of scripture, should be super well known to us. Paul the Apostle says, do you not know, he likes that phrase, he uses that quite a bit, it's like, when did you miss this? <laughs> Don't you know this? There's this great assumption that we're supposed to be knowing the Lord and knowing what he wants from us and knowing basic Christian teaching. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. There's that please. Run. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Remember, receiving the laurels, they would actually take a branch from a tree, a laurel tree, and make it into a crown, and put it on the head, uh, and the athletes would love it because of what the laurel symbolized. But they, they push all this hard to, to win something that's temporary, a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under my control. The, I think the King James was, I buffet my body. And a good friend of mine said, I buffet my body. <laughs> That gets a little close to home, so we won't go there. <laughs> I buffet, I beat, I discipline, I watch this flesh. And this is the Apostle Paul in, in his maturity as a leader. Listen to what he says. I discipline my body and keep it under my control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Can, can I label it? Is it fair to say that Paul has a fear of failure? He's afraid that at the end of his ministry, he's not going to finish well. He's actually going to be defeated. You're out. You, you, you blew it. Uh, you, you lost sight of the race. And you got off onto an alleyway. Uh, your body pulled you away from where you should be. So on that idea of disqualification, particularly in a very blessed state, like a believer, we're, we're immensely blessed. And God's taken a spiritual scoop shovel and put on all his blessings in, in beautiful, uh, lavish style. That's what the Bible says. And so listen to this lesson, verse 1 of chapter 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea 
They were all saved. They all came out of Egypt. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There's a, there's a reference, part or reference to what we just saw. We saw uh, bubbles. Shaman? Cheyenne. We saw Cheyenne get baptized. What, you know, what a joy that is. It's salvation. It's deliverance. It's a symbol of being washed of your sins. It's a symbol of being buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised to new life. We're connected with Christ like Cheyenne is connected to that water. She was all wet. And we're baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ and baptism symbolizes that. And he's saying, look at the Israelites. They were connected into Moses. They were all united. And Moses was the leader. And he led them through, out. And they went through water, through the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. Now this would be a reference to what we call communion. The other ordinance that we are given. But for them it's manna uh, from heaven. God provided, blessed them gave them what they needed. He scooped it on them with a big scoop shovel. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, this is some heavy, beautiful, interesting language. You know, as the people were going through the wilderness, they weren't thinking, oh, that rock, that's Jesus Christ. But, you know, we look back into it and we see symbolized in what God did for them, what God is able to do for anyone who comes to him in faith, to, to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from the wrath of God to come and to be delivered through our identification with Jesus Christ. And Christ becomes the water of life and he's the rock of our salvation. So we drink from Jesus and we eat the same spiritual food. We're blessed, we're blessed. But look what he says. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So having a good start and, and receiving lots of blessings from God does not guarantee that you will finish well. It doesn't guarantee even that you're saved, actually, individually. Being blessed and receiving great blessings is actually no guarantee that God is even pleased with you or that you're even in Christ. You have to make certain your own faith in Jesus Christ alone and that you, you persevere in your faith. Uh, we don't believe the Bible teaches that you lose your salvation. If you're saved, we do believe you will be saved. But there are people who look like they're saved, and they may even think they're saved. But in perseverance, they fail. And at the end, God is not pleased with them, and they are overthrown in the wilderness. And they don't make it to the promise. This is, this is a severe warning. And that, that if Paul is saying, I'm, I have a fear of failure, we all should have a sense of a fear of failure. And you can unpack the box exactly what failure looks like. I'm not going to necessarily nail that, nail that all down. 
Okay? But if you text necessarily, you know they're not done. But anyway, reading on, verse 6. Now these things took place so that we could systematically ignore them. And we could act like history doesn't teach us anything. Is that what your Bible says? <laughs> no. Right? No. These things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. They didn't keep their body in place. It fell victim to the world, the flesh, the devil, the, the temptation of their body. And they desired evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The idolatry is going to come back. Remember our main verse today, verse 14, run from idolatry. Idolatry is when we put anything in the place where God should be. Anything that interferes with our sincere commitment and loving, dogged commitment to obedience, that thing is an idol. Okay. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a reference to the golden calf that Aaron made for them. And they basically had this wild party. They were drinking, they were dancing, they were uh, it was a sinful, sinful, drunken party. And they called it worship. We must not indulge, those verse eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble. How is that? Is that uh, sin out of place in this list? <laughs> uh, the sexual immorality and the drunken revelry and parties. And also grumbling. <laughs> and also complaining. The Bible does that all the time, doesn't it? There's this list of horrible, rotten sins that none of us would, you know, think of participating in. And then it says, also, be happy. <laughs> and also, be thankful. Also, don't grumble. Also, don't be given to anxiety. And so all of these things represent rebellion against God. Nor grumble, as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Observation here. Just notice how the Bible motivates us to obedience. What, what means, what method, what um, approach does the Apostle Paul take to motivating us to, to obedience? I think he's definitely using warning. If, if you continue down this path, you will be destroyed. You will be hurt. You will be damaged. It's not that God's sitting there wringing his hands and saying, Oh, I just, I just wish you would come back to me. And, oh, yeah, I love you. But, oh, I just don't know. <laughs> That's not that image of God. The image of God here is he's strong and he's mighty. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. But... He will demonstrate his wrath on sin. And we want to avoid experiencing that by our means through Jesus Christ alone. They're destroyed by the destroyer. Now, the 
them to them so that we can routinely ignore them. No, that's not what the Bible says. I know I'm not making a big point of that, but these things happened as an example. We're supposed to learn from them. We're supposed to teach this. We're supposed to use these examples to teach our children. Won't that scare them? Won't that bring fear into their heart? Yes, by all means. For example, Charlotte and I left, you know, a lot of kids. And if I was near a busy street and my two-year-old decides he wants to run out into the street, I wouldn't say, oh, goodness, I wish you wouldn't do that. You're hurting my heart when you do that. But please don't grieve your mommy. I'm going to say, no! <laughs> Come back! You can't do that. I may not be quite that volumatic, but uh, you get the point, right? There's a sense of, I love you, beloved. He says in verse 14, I love you. And that's why I am warning you of imminent danger. These things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, there, there's, there's one for the scoffers. <laughs> the Bible thinks these, these are the end, end ages. You know, the earth is pick a number. Eight, 10, 6, 14, 37 billion years old, right? And it's going to last for another. Well, the sun is going to burn out you know, in, uh, in 14 billion years. You better be afraid. Um, the Bible says that God has a timeline. And I, I don't know exactly what it means, but it does say that these are the last days. These are the final time. This is us. The end of the ages has come. It's coming. I don't know how that will all unravel. That's the whole warning thing. There's an urgency to the gospel. There's a good reason to be agitated to be passionate about reaching people. Hell is real and life is short. Okay, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone psychological counsel. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's saying, you know, all of us, any of us, can tumble at any time. And, and even Paul is saying, honestly, guys, I look at myself as a weakling who could be disqualified if I don't stay on top of my passionate, loving commitment to God. And say, God forbid, let's, let's just, you, know, you and I, let's pray that we aren't the people who think that we stand. Let's think that we only stand through the power of God and the power of God. Now here's this gorgeous verse. It says, uh, this one should be uh, an on our minds and hearts and repeated many times. No temptation has overtaken you 
that is not common to man. He's just told us that in history, people were tempted in various ways. All of these Israelites in various ways were tempted, just like you and I are tempted. It's not unique. It's one of the common attacks of Satan. He comes and says, says, That is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Okay. So that's the context. So he says, in our, our little, little one paragraph today, therefore, and that draws all of that in, and even more, right? But, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 14, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. This is talking about their history. And he says, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply that? The food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I can't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Father, if we spend a few minutes trying to unpack this one paragraph, confess that unless you build a house, we labor in vain to build it. Unless you do the teaching, the teacher labors in vain. Oh, Father, would you be so kind as us to teach each of us this great truth that you want, you want us to hear today. You have spoken. You, you want us to hear your word, to feed us, help us to eat of the one bread, the bread of life, and to drink of that spiritual drink, the word of Christ. Satisfy us alone in Christ. Amen. All right. There's an awful lot in here, but 
think you can break it down into some pretty logical, understandable, and a progressive thought pattern in this 14.322. Again, start to that command, run, flee from idolatry, my beloved, because of the context, put your running sheet on. First of all, this is found in a fortune cookie that I carry in my wallet. Not really, it is kind of weird, but <laughs> I like it anyway. All men should try to learn before they die what they are running from and to and why. All men, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we start to figure out who we are supposed to be before we die and what we should run from and what we should run to to God's glory? And I think this text clarifies. First of all, we start with communion, and I'm going to do a little bit of general, a uh, few minutes on, on communion here at the very beginning. If, again, if you were reading the King James Bible, um, you would see that in verse 16, that word participation is actually the verse where we get the word communion. Because in the King James Version it says, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? And is it not a communion in the body of Christ? Now, so, and we have the Lord's Supper, and we call it communion, and he's definitely referring to it here. I think this is actually very enlightening. Uh, I keep glancing at the time, I, I can't take all day uh, on this, but communion represents reality. It represents reality. The, the blood, he starts out with the blood. He says, the cup of blessing we bless. And just remember last week, just last week, we had Jews for Jesus here with the Seder. And I, I actually was playing that on our television program this week and next week, a couple of weeks we prepare for Easter. And remember he had the four four cups. Because in the Seder, there's one cup that's still four, four different times. And... Uh, and Jesus took one of the cups and said, this is the new covenant in my blood you all drink from. It. And so Paul's referring to these exact thoughts. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Communion reminds us as we take the fruit of the vine, we typically use grape juice, <laughs> As we take that little bit of grape juice, that we are participating in the blood of Christ. We have an old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I have some quick references here that I'd like to refer to. Hebrews chapter 10. Just talking about what what is the reality behind the symbolism of communion? Why are we celebrating that we take the blood of Christ? And Hebrews ten seventeen and following. Uh, I'm, I'm interrupting the flow of argument, but for the sake of time, he says uh, and he adds, "I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds." No more. Glory, hallelujah. God releases us 
from our sins and our lawless deeds. He won't remember them anymore. And it says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The blood of Christ was shed once for all. We don't have bloody sacrifice anymore. We come with grape juice to remind us. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And we take that as saying, the blood of Jesus is my salvation. Verse 19, which is Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and he goes on and on, uh, uh, we have access to God the Father through the valuable, infinitely valuable offering of the blood of Christ. You know, that's why we say often at the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. What we're really saying is we're coming to you, God, in the name and authority in the righteousness and through the blood of Jesus. We can casually walk into God's presence, not fearing a lightning bolt of wrath and judgment because we come through the merits of Jesus. We're washed clean from all. He remembers our sins and lawless deeds no more. Um, and it says in Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then look with me at that second reference there, 1 John 1, 5. Just a moment of teaching on what communion brings us to. What, what, is the, what is the symbolism behind communion? What does it symbolize? First Corinthians, excuse me, 1 John 1, 5 to 9. This is the message. We have heard from him and proclaim to you. That's actually the basis of Christian preaching. We proclaim it. And we're not here sharing an idea. We're not here to gently suggest something. This is actually a proclamation. It's truth. This is the word of God, not nature. Don't take my word for this. Listen to God. And that's what's so exciting, really. Uh, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness. No darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's, of course, what communion symbolizes with the blood quickly body. It's the body of Christ made the sacrifice of Christ possible. Look at me at Romans 7. Romans 7, verse 4. This is an interesting passage. It really deserves a sermon or a series of sermons on its own. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but let's look at it. Likewise, my brother. 
you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, we died with him. And we died to the law. That's all of God's regulations that we violate. You know why God gave the Mosaic law and all the Old Testament? The Bible tells us it's to prove to us that we're sinners. It's to prove we can't keep the law. You know, sadly, what happens with law people is they sort of dumb down God's law and make it a little bit easier to keep, and then they feel like, oh, I'm keeping the law, right? And Jesus said, you know, uh, you know it said, don't commit adultery. What God meant is to not to meditate and lust after women. And if you have lusted after a woman, you've violated that law. And then all the men say, okay, Lord, don't tell that. So we need relief from the condemnation. And, and it's literally saying as his, the body of Christ, as he dies, it, we are dying with him to the demands of the law. Likewise, my brothers, as you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might that we may bear fruit for God. So that, that body died, we died with it, we're buried with it, symbolized actually in baptism. We're, we're buried under the water and we're raised to new life. Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering all the commands of God that we broke, satisfying God's wrath. The payment is Paid in full, the resurrection proves that we're accepted in the beloved one, and we have this little bit of bread to remind us of the body of Christ. Let's move uh, on to the next step. So we are only saved by being in Christ. This is why the Christian We're saved in Christ alone. We will use it this morning. Uh, Emphasize that again. We emphasize that back in the gospel. We're saved in Christ. The book of Ephesians uses that term over and over and over and over again. When we're in Christ, we're blessed and saved. And communion as we eat the bread, He comes into us and we come into Him. And it's a symbolic action of faith. Now, so let's look at the next part of, of this paragraph idolatry represents reality. At this point, communion represents reality. And idolatry represents reality as well. Again, uh, look at our text for today in 1 Corinthians 10. He says this. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or an idol is anything? No. Okay, so at, at the surface level, that beautiful Shiva or a beautiful, amazing golden Buddha, big fat guy. And I'm going to be the Buddha. Um, the Bible says that, you know what, that's a piece of art. It's an expression of an idea, but it's actually nothing. It's, it, uh, an idol is nothing, right? But those people are worshiping something behind 
the Nakba. That, that interesting piece of art represents actual reality. There is, there are demons that they are worshiping. That's what he says here. No, it is nothing, but I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So there is a reality underneath the symbol of the idol. Just like in communion. We have, you know, we have grape juice and um, flatbread. You know, it, it actually isn't Jesus. It symbolizes Jesus. And there's a reality underneath it. And you know, when we take it, we worship Jesus. Our hearts and minds soar. And we think that he died for my sins. And his blood paid for my eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The unspeakable gift. You know, we're, we're in rapture and worship and joy, right? And I love people good. Amen. And I like grape juice. <laughs> you know, but it's the deep symbolism underneath it that sustains the actual focus of our worship. Right? And that's what he's saying exactly here. That there's a reality in the demon underneath the symbols. The symbols themselves are actually nothing. And so he says, we must be separate from the worship of demons. I do not want you to be participants. I do not want you to have communion with demons. So let's open this up very quickly. The symbols represent spiritual reality. The Bible teaches that I've already mentioned them, uh, very well-known, spiritual evils in our world. We say the world itself, the whole system, the cosmos of the world is in rebellion against God. Uh, your friends who don't love Jesus don't want you to love Jesus. Why? You feel uncomfortable. You just being there makes them angry because they don't want to come to Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, they're and then there's the flesh. And that's the part where Paul says, I beat my body. He's really not talking about flagellation, like hitting his body. He didn't hit his body. He didn't poke himself with knives or knees. He says, man, inside of me is this monster that wants to sin. He wants to feel good. Now! He wants to drag me away and do evil things. He wants me to go off and have a sexual craziness with prostitutes. Or something. That's what Paul says. That's what he says. I, I, I suppress that. I beat it down so I don't get disqualified. And, and so there's a spiritual reality also of demons, of actual um, demonic activity, and Satan himself that is out there. And they are actually worshiping demons. The Bible says they're, they're darkened and blinded by Satan. And they are without hope and without God in this world. They need God to see the truth and, and to come to Him. Sin is powered by spiritual power. This is why it pulls us so 
There's something deeper than, and worse. It's stronger than me. It's stronger than us. Only in Christ can we have the power to overcome it. We depend on the Spirit to strengthen us in the inner man so that we can live to God. Sin is powered by spiritual powers. That is why it pulls us so hard. When you are stuck on thinking about sin, and it won't leave you alone, you might even come to the point where they say, why am I thinking about this? Why am I constantly thinking about this? It's, it's, you're, you're being tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, you're being tempted by Satan himself to rebel against God. You're being attacked by Satan. Uh, look with me quickly at First Peter 5. I'll be wrapping up talk today and sharing time. First Peter 5 8. First Peter 5 8. Remember how he started in, you know, in our passage Corinthians? I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. Listen to First Peter 5 8. Be sober minded. You're not you're not told to be a victim. Don't run around and tell us all the excuses why. You're called to be growing in Christ. He says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In, in spiritual terms, you're a very dangerous character. You know, the state of California has lots of mountain lions. And every once in a while, one will uh, kill somebody in the church. A few years back, a lady was running on a path in Southern California. And as you're running, you look, oh, she looks like a tasty to a mountain lion. And she was attacked and killed by a, a mountain lion in the state of California. Uh, cats are great hunters. I, I like to watch house cats hunt. Because, you know, get them, yes, get those rodents uh, <laughs> out, out uh, in the fields around our houses. So stealthy, right? And then do they, do, are they quick? Do they pounce when the victim least expects it? They pounce. And that's what God says, we have this enemy. So it's saying, watch out, warning, warning, warning. Someone wants to, just, to destroy you. And that's what Paul's saying. You guys, you're participating so much in the needed culture that you're acting like there's nothing there, but something is there. And you are being tempted by this native culture, and you need to stop. And, and I think the question is, are sin is powered by spiritual powers, but are you worshiping in a pagan temple? And I, I, I thought about that. Well, what does that mean, Lord? What, what does that mean? You know, honestly, this is what some of the apostles are Anything that keeps us from God is, is idolatry. And we worship idols. You know, video games can be a place where evil is honored. You know, what do the video games do? Like splat blood all over, murder, mayhem, yay. It's addicting. 
anywhere that God's standards are ignored or mocked can be a demon temple. Clubs, and I mean like, like night clubs, that whole scene, they are pagan temples where God is mocked and sin is glorified. Internet porn is a pagan temple. You're worshiping in, in a pagan place where demons are powerful and they want to dominate you and destroy your walk with God. Pagan temples are places where evil is are we worshiping in pagan temples? Do we wonder why we're constantly thinking about this? Is it because of the place where we are worshiping? I it's very dogmatic. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So finally, summing it up, worship God. Look at these final words. Again, think of how the Bible motivates people to obey God. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? The Bible actually says the Lord is, is, is a jealous God. In fact, in one place in the Bible, it says, my name is jealous. This is Exodus 34, 14. You shall worship no other God for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. What does that mean? He wants you completely for himself. What does he mean? All the commands are summed up in this. Love me. Love me and love your neighbor and yourself. Love me. Be faithful to me. And he says, should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And, and who is this Lord? Who is Yahweh? And he whimpering, weak, spineless, try-God sort of being. You know, give God a chance. Oh, if you only gave God a chance. You know, I, I'm coming. I, I'm coming. No, that's not the biblical presentation of God at all. You see, it's are, are you stronger than you? If I give him He's the almighty God. That against whom we are committing adultery and acting like we can't see where we worship. You know what God's privacy policy is? He sent it out in the mail. <laughs> he sees everything. He knows everything. It, Go ahead and worry about the NSA or, or Google. Yeah, go ahead and worry about tracking the NSA. That's, that's fine. God's tracking system is much more effective. <laughs> he not only knows what websites you visited, he knows what you thought about. He knows all. And, and he's jealous. He wants us all to himself. You know, this should lead us to the He wants to be honoring to you. For God is just, and God is a strong God. Here's a little bit from a psalm. God is a strong God. Oh, kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. And sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, 
the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. Father, we do beg your forgiveness. We have not been faithful. And we, we hear the warning, Lord. We, we agree with the Apostle Paul. None of us want to be disqualified. We, we want to honor you. And we, want to, we want to see the, the example of past failures in our lives and in the lives of many who've gone before us. Father, we don't want to provoke you to jealousy. We want to love you with a whole heart. And on this first day of the week, we're so thankful for the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus and the promise of your presence with us and your power. Strengthen us, Lord, to serve you. Purge from us our idolatries, we pray. Help us to hear your voice. It says, run, run to me. We want to run to your open arms, your forgiving arms, and worship you. Amen.